Open up to Revelation chapter two. Get out your notes. Something to take notes with. We are a note-taking church. We believe church is a participation sport. Amen, somebody? Don't you leave me up here all alone. <laughs> we are continuing uh, a series that we started a few weeks ago. I got to get right into it because since we got one service, maybe I could just go for an hour, an hour and a half too. I mean, the worst you could do is walk out on me. Revelation chapter two, we're doing a series called Letters from Jesus, as we are looking at the seven letters from Jesus to his church, to his church in uh, Revelation chapters two and three. We are getting into the third letter today, part four of our series, because uh, we had to do chapter one first. There's no letter there, but uh, it was important, chapter one. Um, anybody hear the message the first week in Rez? That's an important chapter. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big chapter in the Bible. Okay. Revelation chapter two, go ahead and open up there. You're going to want it in front of you because we're going to read it right now, and then we're going to take our time working through it this morning. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word of God? <clears throat> this is my first time preaching with us one service. It's good to be together. It's party time. Revelation chapter two, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So it's going to be one of those mornings. <laughs> I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. I know I just learned we got elementary school kids in the room, but that word's in the Bible, so we just gotta say it. Sorry. I'm thinking, I'm like, I got my care. Okay, here we go. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear by the Holy Spirit tonight or this morning to receive your word and uh, we thank you for this beautiful word. We thank you that you're alive. We thank you that you're speaking. We pray uh, that we would be humble as we come to you, ready to receive and ready to follow you and wherever it is that you lead. Such a blessing and an honor to be here together this morning. Lord, we recognize you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are in the room. And we, we submit to you right now with joy. Thank you, God. Soften us for our own sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Anybody a fan of cooking shows? Who's, anybody not a fan of cooking shows? I mean, come on. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I feel like, I feel like this morning I got I to gotta pull off a cooking show. You know how like they start and they've got the plan and the recipe and they've got the counter and there's all those little beautiful glass bowls with the ingredients already chopped and you know 
The thing's already cooked in the oven. And they got like, they can do whatever they want. It's all prepared for them. Um, I feel like I, I got to do that, but more this morning. Where, so this, I hope you brought your A game to church. You're going to need your notes and uh, you're going to need to follow along and just stick with us till the end, till we pull that sucker out of the oven. All right. And uh, we, but we got We still got to get the ingredients out, chop them up, parse them out, do all that. And then we got to get cooking. So uh, I'm going to do my best, Judah. All right, we got to just start off with some review uh, because I know I need it every time I open the book of Revelation. I need to remember what it is that we're talking about. So um, we are trying to get into Revelation and talk about what Revelation is first to give us the right lens for us as we look at the Word of God this morning. So uh, we don't want Revelation. We want to talk about it based on my opinion or based on how uh, somebody else has told you about it. We're going to let the Word of God introduce itself in this series, right? So Revelation is about microchips and Black Hawk helicopters. It is about vaccines and world leaders. It is from super prophets for the purpose of writing Christian sci-fi novels. Because it's the Bible, so of course we can't understand it. Okay, that's not it. How does Revelation introduce itself to us? Revelation chapter one tells us this. If you have this in your notes already, I still invite you to write it again. If you're new to us this morning, I'm giving you a head start. Revelation is first about Jesus. It may deal with other things, but the point is always Jesus. Revelation is to his servants. It's not just written to a mysterious group of people for a specific time. It is not just written to you as an individual but to all servants of God for all times. It is understood through the Old Testament. Remember we talked about in these 404 verses, there's over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. There's a lot in the book of Revelation that sounds crazy, especially if we just leave it up to current events in our imagination to try to figure out what they mean. But we're going to turn to the Bible and let the Bible teach us what these things mean. The, the Bible is our number one tool for interpreting the Bible. Bible study tool tip 101. The best Bible study tool you have is the Bible. We're going to start there. The book of Revelation is from God. This isn't from John. This is from God. Somebody was telling me recently, like, yeah, you know, you just got to approach Revelation and understand John was on drugs. I'm like, no, it's not from John. <laughs> it's from God. <laughs> For his glory. Revelation is is written for his glory. Everything we are reading is to spur us on towards faithfulness to Jesus. Not for our own sake, not for our own lives, not for our own opinions. We are doing this for his glory. If you are reading through your Bible and you get to Revelation and you haven't picked up on the main point yet, Revelation makes the main point of the Bible very clear to us. The target audience of the Bible, the target audience of the church, the target audience of the universe, the target audience of your life is Jesus. Your best life is a life lived for the glory of God. And Revelation is written because he is coming. Everything that has ever been, that is, or ever will be, including you, will end soon. And we will stand before the Alpha and the Omega, the living one. So we read Revelation to learn What's going to matter most in that moment so we can make the wise decision to make that matter the most in this moment? 
As we move into the third letter of the seven letters, the letter of Pergamum, I want to remind you the general flow of the letters because it's going to be how we go through it this morning. And it's going to help us, uh, you know, when, when you're not fully at the destination yet and it feels like you're not there yet, but it's okay because you're on the way, it's going to help us as we get there. So the general flow of these letters, even though they do them all different, they slightly do it differently, but generally, here's what we, here's what we have. We have an introduction of Jesus that's always different, but never random. Somebody say different, but not random. Then we get an encouragement most of the time. I like those. Then we get a rebuke most of the time. Those are less fun. Then we get a call to repent, which sounds mean until you realize you get a chance to repent. And then at the end, you get a promise for the faithful. So who's ready for some Bible study in church this morning? All right. Oof. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We'll start with the introduction that Jesus gives us. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay. So when you think back to about two weeks ago, we were in the letter of Ephesus. And I talked about how when we get to these letters, we need to hear the introduction, not like, oh, it's in the Bible and we've heard it before and we're in church, so this will probably matter for the next 45 minutes, but then I'm going to walk out and live my life and wonder, what does God have to do with anything? We're going to visit this fresh, and uh, we need to pretend like we're picking up the phone and there's no caller ID, remember? Hey, who's this? And what we hear first in this letter is... The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's who's talking. We don't open this letter and get the opening to a letter. Dear Antioch Indy. Well, we just get, no, we just get who's speaking. We get the from at the end, at the beginning. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And here we go with Revelation once again. The weird stuff. But praise God, we have the rest of the Bible. So what, what is this sword? Before we go anywhere, we got to talk about what this sword, because Jesus introduced himself. It's, it's a little different, but it's not random. In his introduction, he's trying to set the tone for what he needs to talk about, how we need to be listening, how we need to be listening and what we need to be ready for. So what is this sword? Well, what does the Bible tell us? Ephesians 6, 17, talking about the armor of God, says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we're talking about the word of God. What is the sword? It is our weapon against the enemy. Are you thankful for that? You don't got to play defense your whole life. All right. That wasn't in the notes and we'll let it not be in the notes and we'll save that for another day because that's encouraging. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the sword that Jesus is talking about. It is the dividing line between what is flesh and what is godly, what is helpful and what is not helpful, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Isaiah 11 verse four says, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. What is the sword? It is his standard of judgment against the wicked. 
His word is the standard of judgment. His word is our weapon. His word is our dividing line, our piece of clarity. In Genesis chapter one, this is the word of God is how he creates everything. The sword, what is this sword? The sword is the word of God. It's his promises. It's his plans, his purposes. It's how he judges. It's how he builds. It's how he sustains. Jesus told us, build your life on the word of God. He said, if you take my words and you do them, it's like building your life on the rock so you can stand against the wind and the waves that are coming up against you. The word of God is how we fight. The word of God is where we get our identity from. It's where we get our direction from. It's where we get our information from about how we ought to interpret things about the world that we are living in. The word of God is the sword, the sharp two-edged sword. So that's what the sword is, but what should we expect from the sword? What should we expect as the one who speaks, the one who has the words the words of the one with the two-edged sword, what should we expect as we get into this letter this morning? Are you seeing how he's trying to help us with this introduction? Well, again, what does the Bible tell us to expect from this sword? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That's what we should expect this morning. We should expect those things. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my words be that go out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Right off the bat, we understand that Jesus is writing this letter to address some challenges that have risen up against his word. Some challenges have risen up against the church in Pergamum, and he's going to address it. So Jesus is speaking his word in this letter. He is exercising his authority. He is laying a foundation for us to build on. He's about to teach, train, straighten out, divide things that need to be divided, cut off things that need to be cut off. Lines are being drawn between what is flesh and what is godly. Clarity is about to be given about what is righteous and what is not. And as we start this letter, we need to understand as the readers that the words that we are about to read are said with power. And they come with power. They will stand the test of time and there is no doubt that the purposes behind the words we're about to read will be accomplished. That's what the introduction says. Jesus says, we need to talk. This isn't a game. And challenges have risen up against my word, but my word is not a toy. It is a sharp, two-edged sword. And I know that's what you came to church for this morning. So thankfully, let's start with the encouragement. <laughs> Which means it's strong. It's a powerful encouragement. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. They're going through it. Say, I know you're holding fast to my name. This is, again, one of those encouragements that you would love to hear from Jesus. <laughs> this is a good one. 
You're holding fast to my name. You haven't denied my faith. Even when they took out your friend and killed him, you didn't turn on me. Good job, church. You didn't give in to the pressure. What is this Satan's throne business? Because it's probably some country in the newspaper right now, right? <laughs> so it says, where am I here? Where, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Long story short, uh, the, the general consensus is that this isn't talking about necessarily one specific leader, but about the city of Pergamum as a whole. It was a center for pagan worship. It was a center of kind of the Roman imperial cult at the time. So the believers would have understood what was happening. You are living in a city where it's really hard to hold fast to the name of Jesus. You're living in a city that has a culture and momentum that's trying to pull you away, trying to pull you into the things of Satan. Satan has taken root in this city. That's what it means when it's saying you're sitting, you're sitting right there at basically the throne of Satan, but you have held fast to my name, even when he killed one, even when he killed one of your brothers. They're standing against pressure. There's economic pressure. There's cultural pressure, political pressure from the outside. They are getting hit from all angles from outside of the church. Why is Jesus encouraging them about this, about these, these things, that you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith? We've got to get into this. See, I'm still chopping up the onions, okay? We're not even putting the onions in yet. We got to talk about this because we learned something about the church at Pergamum here. They're holding fast and they're not denying his faith. But we also learn something about Jesus by the fact that he's encouraging them about this. What we learn is Jesus likes this stuff. Jesus really likes when we hold fast to his name and when we don't deny his faith because this is the whole point of church. This is the gospel. Jesus is encouraging them. You are holding to the gospel in the midst of all this pressure from the outside. If you remember from our biblical formation course, we're gonna keep referring back to that. But what makes us human is that we are made in the image of God. The defining factor that separates us from the rest of creation is, is maybe not necessarily some trait or ability, but our stated purpose of being created by our creator. We exist to image God. We exist to carry his name. That's why he made us. To be human is to carry the image of God. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. We're doing more chopping, okay? It's going to feel random, but we're getting there. So Genesis 1 tells us that. Genesis chapters 1 through 12, in a lot of ways, serves as an introduction to the whole Bible. We get creation in the beginning, how it's supposed to be. We get the fall and the brokenness and the result of that. We covered all that in biblical formation at the beginning of the year. If you look at Genesis chapter 11, you get the story of the Tower of Babel, something you're probably all familiar with. If you're not, that's okay. We've got a Bible for you. You can read it. So Genesis 11, it's, it's getting us to the end of the Bible's introduction to what is the story of God? What is the story of humanity? What is the trajectory of all of this? What can we expect? What were we made for? What goes wrong now that we broke all of this? So in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, we learn at the beginning, we're supposed to carry God's name, but at Babel, the plan is, let's make a name for ourselves. 
That, that's what it says. Let's, let's all get together. Let's make a name for ourselves. And God says, I'm not having that. You're not here to make a name for yourself. So, Jesus, so God confuses everything, and our hearts choose rebellion against God. That's what the Bible's introduction tells us. You are made to carry the name of God, but what you do is you choose not to. That's what we do. It didn't just happen at Babel. It's an us thing. That's what we do. We rebel. <laughs> That's what's called sin. But then the next chapter in Genesis 12, to finish the introduction, we see that God is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In chapter 12, as he reaches into humanity that has rebelled against him, he pulls out this man, Abram, and he says, out of you, I'm going to raise up a people to carry my name. And he says, I will make your name great. You're not here to make your own name great. I will make your name great. You're going to carry my name. You're going to carry my name and you're going to show people how to carry my name. I'm raising you up so you can bring people back to their purpose of carrying my name. It was never meant to be exclusive, but you got to model it so that everybody can want it. The reason it's the introduction to the Bible is because the rest of the whole story goes on to show that uh, they do in the Bible what we do today. We continue to reject this. We continue to reject the will of God that we carry his name. So what does God do? He sends his son. He so loves the world that he sends his own son. He sends his own name. He sends himself to do it. And his son did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant. He made himself nothing and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in this death, we receive forgiveness for our sin of turning away from carrying the name of God to build our own name. You remember biblical formation, we said, what's the definition of sin? It is building your own name. And so Jesus forgives us in his death that we deserve. Three days later, he rises again so that we can be born again, new start, recreated, new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Are we tracking with me this morning? So now we've been forgiven of sin. We get new life in his resurrection. And 50 days later, he sends the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, so that we are no longer sons of disobedience, but, sons of disobedience, but children of God. See, Jesus recreated everything. Not so that we can do whatever we want, have whatever we want, have nothing go wrong in our great Christian lives, but so that we could be ambassadors for Christ who carry his name. This is why Jesus encourages them, because this is everything. You are holding fast to my name. Everybody on the outside is trying to get you to go after other things, but you are holding fast to my name. And this is why you even exist. And we receive all of this, not by works, so that none of us can boast, but by grace through faith in the mighty name of Jesus. He's saying, you're holding fast to my name and you haven't denied that you've received it by grace. You're not running off to do your own thing. You're not running off to do it in your own works. There is and there will always be outside pressure. But my friends, if you want to please Jesus, do these two things. Carry his name. Represent his name. And don't turn away from having faith in him. Good job, church. 
in Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now I know there's a lot of names and things in here. We're going to get there. We're still chopping. We're under the cucumbers, maybe. Right, let's get into the meat. This is the meat. This is definitely the meat. We'll get there. But what we learn right here is Pergamum is a paradox. The church is standing strong against the pressure outside of the church, but they are tolerating compromise inside the church. If you remember from the letter to the church in Ephesians, we meet our old foes, the Nicolaitans again. And they are likened to those who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak all these things so that the sons of Israel would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and go off into sexual immorality. We'll get into the names here in just a second. But what's with this like food, sacrifice to idols things? This doesn't seem really relevant to me. Sexual immorality thing, I can kind of get there, okay? But the short version of this whole food sacrifice to idols idea is that the, the pagan worship, the pole of the pagan worship was to sit at other tables of worship. So we've got the Lord's table of communion. Oh, goodness gracious. And Jesus says, I want you to sit at my table and I want you to feast on me. Here's this bread, it's my body. Here's this wine, it's my blood. Remember me. Amen? There's other pagan religions trying to do the same thing. Hey, come sit at our table as we offer food to our idols, as we offer food to our gods, as we fellowship around the name of other gods, as we unify around the name of other gods, as we find unity in seeking fulfillment through other things. Come and gather around this other table. The problem wasn't the food. The problem was the worship. The purpose of the meal was to carry another name. They're worshiping other gods. Like the Nicolaitans, you know, we said they were a people of the spiritual cocktail of the day. And it's the same thing as beginning to happen inside the church in Pergamum. They are facing the pressure from the outside, but they are beginning to drink the cultural spiritual cocktail of the day. They didn't reject the name of Jesus. They just weren't totally satisfied with carrying only the name of Jesus. We're going to try that again because that made a lot of sense. What's this food sacrifice to idols thing all about? It's not about totally rejecting Jesus. They just weren't totally satisfied with carrying only Jesus. And then obviously we have sexual immorality. Why is Jesus harping on this so much? Why does the Bible harp on this so much? The mandate given to humanity at creation, Genesis chapter one was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth, fill it, take dominion over it. Humanity was created in the image of God to carry his name, establish his kingdom on the earth. And the way they were to do it was to be faithful to him, be fruitful and multiply so that all these imagers would cover the earth. As image bearers, we are called to create families. We are called to be family as the church. We are called to be brothers and sisters. 
And we are called to create families and be families that grow and expand and reflect the image of God. Sexual immorality is rebellion against the mission and calling of humanity. That's why it's such a big deal. Anything sexual outside of marriage between one man and one woman, it's selfish, it's destructive, and it goes against God's plans for the world. Sexual immorality is a sin against the calling of humanity. It's a sin of against what it even means to be human. It's not what we're called to. We were created for a reason, for a purpose, by a creator who spelled out how we are ought to do this and why we are even here. And this is, this is amazing. He's like a huge fan. Can't say it too much with the elementary, but he loves that stuff. That's why he spelled it out, how to do it best. All right. The food sacrifice to idols from the inside is compromising their ability to carry the name of Jesus. And ultimately, sexual immorality is a rejection of faith in Jesus. I don't believe that you are the creator. I don't believe that you said what you said. I don't believe you said to do things how you said to do them. And I don't believe that you know what's best. I don't have faith in you. Church, there is more and more of all of this inside the church in our day as well. These, who, who are the Nicolaitans? What, what, what's with Balaam? Like, why don't we just go find these leaders and then we can post about them on Instagram and say, don't follow these guys. And then we got problem solved, right? The, the point isn't that there was like a, a sect of people led by a guy named Nicolaitan or whatever. These, these are terms that would have been understood by the Christians in Pergamum of kind of schools of thought or schools of opinions, not necessarily led by one person. Balaam was a prophet from the Old Testament. He's long dead and gone. They can't go find him anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so to understand what Jesus is getting at here is if, if you look at the words Nicolaitan and Balaam, if you break them down into their syllables and the, the where the words come from, they both mean the same thing. They mean essentially the same thing, one who rules over the people or one who conquers the people. That's what these names mean. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament who encouraged a foreign king on how to infiltrate the Israelites, not by fighting against them, but by drawing them away to idols and drawing them away to their immorality. The goal of Balaam and the king Balak was to conquer the people. Nicolaitans, one who rules over the people, this thing, this spiritual cocktail, it's the same idea. They're trying to rule over the church from the inside. What I'm trying to say is that there are agendas and even people who are trying to rule over Jesus's church. They're trying to steer and lead Jesus's church, and they're trying to do it with additional allegiances. Jesus is great, but let's not be satisfied with only Jesus. They're trying to lead with additional allegiances to other agendas, feelings, compromises, distractions, idols, immorality, bad theology, cultural movements and momentum, political preferences, 
competing worldviews, personal vendettas and bitterness. He's not talking about one group of people doing one specific thing. He's talking about people who are trying to steer the church with their own agenda. They're doing it with their agendas and they always involve compromising your morality. And even in our day, this is hard. And it may look innocuous at times, like what's the big deal? Do we really need to draw a line on this or that? Or how do we draw the line on this or that? It's, it's not comfortable, but Jesus sees it for what it is. It's all a pull to let go of his name. It's a pull to reject faith in him. And the church in Pergamum may not all be following it, but the church is tolerating it. And Jesus isn't happy with the people doing it or with the people tolerating it. And he says in verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Ultimately, all of these things are a war against the word of God. And my dear friends, it is not wise to pick a fight with the word of God. The word of God is a sword. And the question is not if we will face the sword of his mouth, but how will we face the sword of his mouth? Will we, will we bow before the great physician and allow him to do surgery on us? Or will we challenge the king of kings and invite his judgment against us? How do you want to approach the sword? We will face the sword of the mouth of Jesus, either as a scalpel or a gavel. And the choice is ours. Praise God. Jesus isn't happy about what's happening because he sees very clearly what we often do not see clearly. Jesus sees clearly that compromising on the word of God is the first step towards being conquered by the world. Do not follow anyone or anything that tries to manipulate, add to, water down, discount, or distract you from holding fast to his name. Do not follow anyone or anything that tries to allure you into a sexual ethic that denies him and what he has called humanity to. Humble yourself now. Let's humble ourselves now. Humble ourselves now and let the word of God do surgery on your choices, your desires, your opinions, your beliefs, your decisions, your direction, your actions, your mind, your heart. Do not blindly follow the pursuit of cultural comfort, peer pressure, smooth talking, 
Endless debates and opinions, ever-expanding gray areas, charismatic personalities, the promise of power and influence, self-centered theology, theology that's been manipulated by personal feelings. Don't chase any of this stuff, not because these things are good and God doesn't want you to have them, but because God will come and war against those things with the sword of his mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh God, that's my prayer this morning. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So after all of that, we're supposed to be encouraged by this cryptic promise. I was hoping for something a little more black and white than that. You know? Notice the contrast here. Hold on, guys, not yet. I'm gonna be a minute. <laughs> if we wanna understand this, Jesus is, Jesus is being very intentional with this promise here, and we need to have eyes to see it and pick it up. Notice the contrasts in the promise versus the rebuke. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. This is a direct contrast to eating food sacrificed to idols. Do you see it? There's a lot to get into about all of this, but the point again is don't join to another name. Don't align to something else. Hold fast to my name. So again, all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, meals with God are a very common thing in the Bible. It happens a lot in Genesis especially, happens several times throughout key points in the Old Testament, and then Revelation refers to everything culminating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Meals with God are a thing. The hidden manna, this should remind us of the manna of the wilderness when God provided manna for the Israelites, not if you're remembering manna, Okay. And then what does Jesus say in John chapter six? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna. What he's saying in this promise, to the one who conquers, to the one who chooses now to not be found at any other tables, any, under any other name, in the end, to that one, I will invite you to join at my table. Deny those tables now and join with me at my table in the end. He says, I will give you a white stone. This is a direct contrast against the stumbling block of sexual immorality. White is symbolic all through Revelation in so many different ways, always speaking to right the righteousness that Jesus gives the saints, the faithful saints. And the readers of the letter at, at first would have also been thinking about the white stone as it likely referred to stones that were used in the judiciary in Pergamum when casting votes regarding guilt or innocence. 
A black stone was cast to cast a vote of guilt and a white stone was cast as a declaration of innocence. A white stone of righteousness and innocence is directly contrasted against the stumbling block of sexual immorality. He's calling us not to tolerate inside the church anything that comes against what he's called us to. He says, do not tolerate the stumbling block and you will receive the white stone. You will receive righteousness. You will receive my vote of your innocence and the promise of a new name, a white stone with a new name written in the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, as we read the book, the rest of Revelation, this idea of a new name or Jesus having on him a name that nobody knows until it will be revealed in the end. This is a familiar concept. And what it, that teaches us about this verse here is that Jesus is promising to the one who conquers, if you will hold fast to my name now, I will hold you fast in my name for eternity. I'm not really sure how to close this message. So we're just going to worship. <laughs> now you guys can come up. <laughs> I know that I could try to get really practical about how to build your life on the word of God. And there's a lot of different things we could talk about, but that's why we have life group. And if you need more help, we've got lots of resources to help you with that. But the simple point of this morning is to just stand firm on the word of God. I know there's a lot moving on, but this is important. We're pulling the lasagna out of the oven right now. You waited this whole time for this. Don't miss it. Don't settle. Don't settle for things that sound good. Build your life on the word of God. Build your life on the word of God. TikTok and Instagram are not where you're going to build your devotional life. You're not going to develop good theology sitting alone with your own thoughts and feelings. The newspaper and cultural movements are not going to lead you into the kingdom of God. Flashy things and people with no substance will not help you stand in the end. You are called to be a conqueror. You are called to hold fast to the name of Jesus. You are called not to deny his faith, and you can do it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, joined together with the church, you can do it. We can do it. We can do it. We can be faithful. We can hold fast. We can be faithful to his word. We can stay pure in our hearts. And when we do that, we bear witness about him to the world. We live what we're created for. And when our lives living that way are over, we will be welcomed into his feast, dressed in his righteousness, stamped with his name. Let's stand and worship this morning. I'm going to have our, worship, our prayer team come on up if you need prayer for anything this morning. You can come to the front. You can come have somebody pray with you, whatever it is that you might need. We just believe that if you're at church, you should be able to get prayer for stuff. And my encouragement to us is just to come humbly and approach Jesus and say, Lord, I want to receive, I want to receive your sword. Come and divide what needs to be divided. Clarify what needs to be clarified. 
encourage what needs to be encouraged, rebuke what needs to be rebuked. Lord, I want to carry your name and I want to hold on to your faith. So Lord, that's what we're here for this morning. Come Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you're saying to this church and lead us in life everlasting.